sometimes you do things that make you sick. I mean, I've, I've been on the Today program. I sat in the green room and I just thought I'm going to throw up. And sometimes you do these things on Newsnight too and you think, what the hell am I doing? You just have to remember that you might not be the best or the brightest person that's ever been on Newsnight or the Today program or whatever the thing that intimidates you is. You won't be the worst, I promise you. I really promise you. You know, look at the President of the United States. There are plenty of people who bluff out there. Do your homework, be prepared and take on those challenges, even if they make you terribly, terribly nervous because it's worth it. A warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, an award-winning social enterprise dedicated to supporting leaders with babies and young children. I believe it is not okay that in the UK today, if you have children and want to care for them, it really does impact on your chances for career progression. So I believe that we can change this together. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support to continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Rosie Campbell. She's the director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and also professor of politics at King's College in London. Rosie and I talk honestly about her experience of parenting whilst in a leadership role. We explore what research tells us about career progression for women and we discuss the impact of the lockdown on gender equality at work. Enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Rosie, to the podcast. Delighted to have another chance to have a conversation with you. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself to the listeners? Tell us a bit about your family and what you do day to day. Okay. In which order would you prefer, family or what I do day to day? Start with the family. Okay. So I am married to a man with two children, two girls. They are 11 and 9. I don't know what else to say, really. <laughs> that's that's absolutely fine. And how are you finding the lockdown situation at the moment? I feel that I shouldn't moan about it, but it's absolutely awful because unbelievably, given my politics, just the way things have worked out, my employer are very is very supportive of parents and has sent out a wonderful email saying they understand that many colleagues are parents and they've been very, very supportive. So I've been able to take three hours I mean, it's, I've decided how to manage it. And I take three hours, nine till 12 to do the homeschooling. And then I fit my work around that. But I'm constantly interrupted. And so it's, I suppose a lot of people are feeling this torn between feeling that three hours isn't enough school and it probably isn't good enough quality school that I'm giving them. I'm still trying to answer emails when I do it. And then when I'm working, I'm being disrupted when I'm working. So I feel that I'm not doing that very well either. I am quite frustrated. Mm. Um, and as I'm sure, I know there are many, many people in much worse position, but you did ask me how I'm finding it and mm. I've been honest. Yeah, thank you. For, thank you for being honest. <laughs> and you know, I love this. I saw this on Twitter, quote from Offset Inspector about how he would be rating himself and completely <laughs> in special measures on all accounts. Oh. And I, I think that's very freeing. And, and just, you know, giving ourselves permission to remember that this is a crisis and we are not replacing school we're just doing yes, what we can but I also I've always had in my mind as an educator and a public servant I always I remember when the children were born I thought nobody's going to get a better education than my kids 
<laughs> you know, and it frustrates me now that many of the private schools are actually back full time. And I've never, ever felt that my kids are disadvantaged by going to state school before this point in my life. And I feel really sad about that and sad for all the other parents who, like me, really, really strongly believe in state education, but feel actually this is a moment in which many of us are not able to take advantage of the opportunities that children in many private schools have gone back full time. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And it probably will influence what decisions some people make further down the line who might, from a politics perspective, really believe in state schools, but then might have in the back of their mind, well, actually, are there still things that you do get? But yeah, that's a very, I used to work for Teach First, which is an educational charity. So I'm extremely, extremely passionate about education. But that, that would be quite a different podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yes, but you and I, we met first when, again, via Twitter, actually, which probably means I'm spending a little bit too much time on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but we did because I saw that you were really interested in gender equality and you're obviously, well, why don't you tell us a bit about the work that you do, the brilliant work yes, that you do? So I have kind of two hats, really. The work that you're interested in, I'm the, I'm the director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. My boss is Julia Gillard, the former Australian Prime Minister, and we're a research institute, but with the ambition to make the research have an impact using Julia's profile and networks and her expertise. So we really try to bring the research and different people's research together and bring it to a wider audience. I'm also a professor of politics and about half of my research is on gender and half of it's on other factors. So I, I keep that work going as well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. How much you're keeping going at the same time. But I'll try not to be too, <laughs> what do you call it? You know, when you meet like a celebrity who's doing, which you are to me, not to be oh, like, oh, like oh, you're doing so many different <laughs> things. <laughs> Anyways. So yeah, that's very impressive. But I'm just interested a bit more before we get stuck into, I want to grill you about your research, but just tell me your personal biggest learning point in combining a really ambitious career with kids. Well, so when I had my children, there wasn't that, I mean, so gradually over the years, there was more state provision of childcare, free childcare and good quality childcare. But when I had my first, there was really very little And my work at my previous employer, Birkbeck University of London, that was all teaching in the evening. So there wasn't a huge amount of the kind of childcare I needed in that I could start work a little bit later, but I needed childcare to finish a bit later. And I was incredibly lucky that my mother did a lot of, lot of I do feel that I've been able to get as far as I have in my career. A lot of that is because my mum really gave us a lot of support in the first few years of my children's lives. And then as they got older, it became easier because they were in school or after school clubs. I've got a new job that doesn't require as much evening work. And I think over time, as my mum stepped back from that childcare, my husband and I have shared everything now 50-50, which perhaps wasn't the case in the early years. Mm. And I'm interested, is there anything from the research that you're aware of that you've really taken on board? just in the day-to-day choices you make about your career and your family? I'm often sort of alarmed by how things I know about the research don't inform my behaviour. So that's probably a negative answer to your question. But in my previous job, I was written to by a senior colleague saying that I hadn't applied for a pay rise. And they had a sort of standard process whereby it was a kind of hands up 
they put an email around saying anyone who is at the professorial level who would like to request a pay rise. And I thought, well, I've only been a professor for a short time. I'm not ready for a pay rise and didn't ask. And then the senior colleague asked me why I hadn't asked. And I thought, goodness, I know all the research about women, you know, under asking. And I felt quite cross with myself. So that's an example where even though I knew the research, I was still affected by the same social pressures as everyone else. I think the role model effect that's demonstrated in the research is really important to me. And actually, when I had my two daughters, I was really spurred on to show them that you can have a family life and still pursue your dreams and do things that are worthwhile. And I think that idea that they would then see me as a role model and not be limited in their choices, that was important to me. What is that role model effect? So obviously, I'm a political scientist, so I'm more familiar with that field. But for example, when Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister of Australia, young women became more interested in politics and more likely to engage with politics. So we, we know that, for example, if you put pictures of women in an office building, women are more likely to think that's a place for them. And so it's a small signals that I think we all know that we learn from our families. And I think that socialization is really important. And I think if I really want my girls to see me living my dreams at the same time as hopefully being a half decent mother. Mm. And actually having a real role model really matters, doesn't it? Rather than sometimes you do see people in the media portrayed as these perfect mothers or fathers for that matter who do brilliantly at looking after their kids and at the same time are exceptional in their careers and I think when those pieces don't illustrate the challenges then sometimes people say to me well actually I don't think I can be as brilliant as her so I might as well give up so I do think the role models need to be real role models rather than posters of perfect That's backed up by the research, which shows that if role models seem too distant and too unachievable, it doesn't work. So actually, if you're sending role models into schools, of course, it's wonderful to see, you know, really stellar figures. And that can be really inspirational. Actually, it can be really, really effective to say, send someone who's just five years older and has made decisions. And then you think, oh, I could see the steps that you've made to get there. And I can see how I might begin to follow those. So it's very important to combine the stardust with the realism that you describe. You mentioned about pay earlier, and obviously this is a tricky time to talk about pay, but I do think it's still important. So is it true then that women are less likely to ask for pay rises? Because I've seen conflicting research around that, but in your summary view. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of the research is that one of the problems is, it's not that you know women don't want pay rises or they're too shy to ask or any of this it's that they know they will be judged more harshly if they do ask. And so some of the research suggests that if you can have a sponsor ask for you, that will get rid of this problem, which I think is exactly what I described in my own case. It's actually a man who stepped forward and said, I think you deserve a pay rise. Well, then if he speaks on my part, I don't look like a pushy woman. And so actually designing processes, and I think this just makes sense. If you say, hands up, who wants a pay rise? You may not always get the most deserving people putting their hands up. Whereas if instead you look across your colleagues and you look at their output and you see who deserves a pay rise, you might come up with quite a different set of people. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't also have a hands up because your own biases might influence who you tap on the shoulder. But it sh- I think it should be both ways. You know, you, you really do need to have processes that identify what people produce and the quality of that. So it shouldn't be tapping someone on the shoulder because they're your mate. It should be looking at okay, what are our expectations of our colleagues and who is delivering? Mm, that's very true. And actually, 
there's the other point. Well, I responded makes it really well. The idea that actually should we not just design a system where it's less likely that automatically women are disadvantaged by the way that they've been socialized. So, you know, why was there an email sent out? I'm not picking on your employer, but just the question, why was there an email sent out where people had to put their hands up rather than a process that... I think it was just the way it was always done. And I actually think that they learned because they changed it. So historically in universities, it was always the case that you get these round robin emails. It's time, it's, you know, it's progression and award reward time of year for this group. You know, anyone who thinks they're ready should speak to their line manager, should fill in this form. It was just the way it was always done. But I think in the university sector, the Athena Swan process is why suddenly I got the you haven't applied. Why? Because I think there was a recognition on the part of universities that this isn't working very well. And is there anything else from the research that you, when you are in the pub, I don't know if you go to the pub, but when you go... I'd to like the- to. Unfortunately, <laughs> they're closed, aren't they? That's I would love true. to go to the pub. <laughs> when you, what do people, what do you do nowadays? Or is like, in my case, I think my social life has gone down to a few phone calls with my friends, but do you do any of those pub, virtual pub quizzes? Or I have a virtual pub quiz with my school friends. I have a couple of running buddies that I, and I actually had a run with a running buddy yesterday and after we ran, we sat two meters apart with a glass of wine each that we'd carried on our backs. So we are finding ways around it now that we've got a little bit more freedom. That does sound excellent. So so <laughs> for, for those people who you do meet in a very social distant way, what advice do you give them about how they can, I guess, you know, what was the most common thing you tell them about how they can put that research into action, as in research about women's career progression? Well, I try not to drive my friends nuts by always talking to them about research. But certainly when I've got friends who are thinking about the next stages in their career, thinking about promotion, I do always remind them of, oh, I think I'm not quite ready or so on. Oh, no, no. Just remember, there'll be a lot of people, mostly men out there who really aren't quite ready, who are putting themselves forward. So I think you don't have to know the research to be a good friend and encourage your friends to rate themselves highly and to be prepared to do battle with the bias processes if they exist, mm. where they exist. So from your perspective, it's very much about allowing people to, well, just champion others, I guess, and helping them yeah. to overcome stereotypes that they might have themselves or perhaps other people's stereotypes. And at the end of the day, we've both said there are structural problems in the way organizations are sometimes run. And you have to talk to the leaders of all those organizations to change their promotion processes. I am not a big fan of fixing the women at all. I also think we often look inside our relationships. I've already said about my own relationship that everything's 50-50 now, but it hasn't always been. And individually, there are things we can do, but there are wider social pressures as well that we have to acknowledge. We know that, you know, we get these vicious cycles where men are often paid more and then women take a step back. So they're paid even less, et cetera, et cetera. And each person, it feels like an individual story, but it's not. It's, it's about social pressure that it affects many, many of us. So raising awareness about those issues so that if you get the offer of that more challenging job, sometimes a woman might be more likely to discount it and just say, well, you know, give it some thought. What would you, what if your husband were given or your partner were given this opportunity? What would you think? Mm. And we're obviously recording this at the time of the coronavirus pandemic. And just this morning, I reread an article by the Institute for Fiscal Studies here in the UK that said that it's having a really significant impact on mothers. So mothers are more likely to be furloughed. Well, you know this, but I just say it for the benefit of the listeners. But so mothers are more likely to be furloughed. Mothers are more likely to pick up more of the childcare 
hours. They're more likely to do more of the housework if there is. And also we did some research ourselves with our fellows in our community and it looks like many mothers report that they experience the employers of their male partners think that it's the moms that should pick up the childcare. I'm simplifying here. I'm afraid that's so often true and it's so depressing. It's going, it's having a very retrogressive effect. And I think one of the things I really worry about is what happens afterwards. How is people's performance during this crisis evaluated? Because if you've locked yourself in a room 18 hours a day of being hyperproductive because someone else has been doing your childcare, you might be the person who's retained or promoted. Whereas if you're the person who's shouldered this burden, you might well be let go. And how do we make sure that that talent isn't lost and that those individuals' lives are not scarred by this for the rest of their lives? Yeah, it's terribly, terribly worrying. And we and, and organisations like yours and mine really need to be out there arguing for the, the loss of talent, if that's what happens, because this isn't working from home in any normal sense. You would never choose to work from home with your children at home that you then have to educate. And so really, this should be pause on people's productivity in terms of evaluation. And there should be an opportunity for people to be evaluated on what happened before the crisis or after the crisis. But I I really worry that with the pressures that are going to be on firms, as you say, women who are already furloughed might be the ones that they let go. I think that point about evaluation is really important. I'm meeting tomorrow with a group of HR leaders to discuss exactly the question, what can we do to minimise the impact? And I think that's a really important point that I'll share with them. So there will be some more employers who will be really forward thinking, but then there will be others who are not. And if you are a woman or a man heavily in you know, knees deep in childcare and you don't have a supportive employer, aside from changing employers, which may or may not be possible. It's really difficult at this yeah, time. But yeah. What advice would you have for them to make sure their careers doesn't suffer long term? Obviously, this crisis is unprecedented. I mean, they didn't even close the schools in the UK during the Second World War. So it's difficult to roll out advice based on past history. I think this is about collective action. I think it's very hard for the individual faced by that unsympathetic employer. I think they should find others in a similar situation, of which there will be many, because so many of us are parents. And they need to lobby the employer to say, don't judge us on this period when you know this, we've had so much pressure on ourselves. So I wouldn't say, let's not think of this as an individual's problem. Let's collect together. Let's find each other inside our organizations and make sure that that collectively those voices are heard. Mm, Absolutely. And I think that will be easier if we have more women in senior leadership roles or carers in senior leadership roles in the first place. I think this is an opportunity in that there will be a number of men. Of course, we know on average women have taken up more of the burden, but there will be men whose partners are essential workers who've had to do it and we need to find them and work with them because that is when employers will start to see this differently it's not just a woman's issue it can affect any of their employees and I think that's going to be absolutely critical and there will be a lot of men out there in that situation yes disproportionately women but there are plenty of men I mean if you think about the key workers nurses I mean 70% of the healthcare sector are women but there will be a lot of men of course I'm talking in a very heteronormative way here But if we're thinking about heterosexual couples with children, there will be a lot of men who have had to do a lot of childcare and let's find them and work with them. Mm, Absolutely. And on a positive note, I can report that in our survey, a lot of the fellows actually said 
that positive result of the crisis was how much how supportive their partners were and how much they got stuck in and how good they were that's so heartening to hear that really is wonderful (laughs) yeah definitely definitely yeah so one thing i'm a little bit sorry i don't want this to be a really negative (laughs) podcast but i think we need to be real as well but one thing i'm a little bit worried about i want to think about is just about making sure people still progress because if women and generalizing here if women have taken a backseat now we need to make sure that they're not disadvantaged in terms of future career progression so you know five years down the line what will this mean for representation at senior leadership level of women or ethnic minorities for that matter yeah and I just wonder Some how of this can, depends how long this goes on for and I do understand that there is a massive difficulty for the government in trading off the healthcare versus the school issue. But while so many schools remain closed to so many children, this is a massive problem. And the sooner they go back and the sooner childcare is available to everybody, the shorter this crisis will be. And in a career of however many years we're thinking our careers are going to be these days, I mean, are we thinking they're going to be 40 years plus? More than that. I mean, what are we thinking a career is going to be 50 years, 50 years plus? Really, a three, four month window should be something we can accommodate. And we need to get back to making childcare a massive priority as quickly as possible. Because it, it, as you described, the, the, the long-term impacts on the economy are massive. And I think at the beginning of the crisis, I was quite hopeful that there was at least, sort of not at the very beginning, but shortly after the shutdown, there was a recognition that childcare is an important part of our economic infrastructure. And that actually the key workers couldn't go to work without it and it had to be made available. And that was useful because I'm not sure that that was always in the minds of the decision makers in this area. But I really hope that lesson isn't unlearned. So I I think, you know, a maternity leave shouldn't damage a career. A paternity leave shouldn't damage a career. This could relatively be a very, very short, stressful time. And it's how we help people bounce back from that. Absolutely. And also on a positive note, our we've asked our fellows what are the bits that they would love to continue and this there are a lot of I guess you know this not to not acknowledge the tremendous sadness and tragedy of this crisis but there are a lot of small gold nuggets for the change of employers so yes many people said they worked really on social hours very hard work but also they felt it was really freeing that now everyone is allowed in quotation marks to work from home. In fact, everyone is forced, if unless you're a key worker, to work from home. And that's very powerful. This social acceptability that it is okay. You're not lazy if you're dialing in via video conferencing. It just means you're dialing in via video conferencing. And that's so important. And there is such an impact of part-time work on career progression. And I really hope that this can be the start of shifting that and help part-time workers progress. And also make it easier to be a full-time worker. I mean, I've always worked full-time. And part of the reason I was able to do that is because I had, although there was evening teaching, there was a lot of flexibility about as and when I did my hours when I wasn't teaching. And that meant that I could, you know, okay, I was out in the evening, not every evening, two to three evenings a week teaching, but I could get up with the kids. And obviously when they were little, that was often ridiculously early. And I would start work at 11 or 12, having had five hours with them, which was just absolutely wonderful. And if we can have that kind of flexibility, then it will allow more people to work full time. I think and that I agree with you, it's very, very optimistic about more flexible working, more home working, 
But we do need to make sure it isn't a sort of always on expectation, which I think because at the moment we're all, so many people are juggling so much, we feel like we are always on. And we do need to have expectations about when you can realistically expect an answer to an email, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And that's the flip side of flexible working. Let me ask you about boundaries. It sounds like you are holding down a number of jobs within your job. You obviously are and you just told me about the 9 to 12 window that you have with your children. At the moment, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I can't wait for that to end. <laughs> I'm interested. How did you manage boundaries at the beginning of your career or when your kids were young? And how do you manage them now? What practical things can others learn from that? Well, I mean, I think I've said already that I had quite a flexible job. And I hope, as you say, there might be many more of those. So I did put in a lot of hours, but I always had the mornings with the children. And then I, so I would work from, if I was working at home, I'd work from kind of 11 to six or something like that. And then on the days I had to go into London and teach in the evening, I wouldn't get home until about half past 10. So I'd be 11 until 10.30. And on the days when I was with the children, I would then stop and put them to bed and so on, and then do some kind of boring brain dead work, you know, for another hour or so. I, ha I wouldn't say it was, I mean, I would often find myself, you know, with a deadline or something, having got up with the kids at four or five, still doing that, you know, that brain dead work at half 11, 12, and just feeling absolutely exhausted. So I don't think I'd recommend it <laughs> in that regard. And I think the other point that I feel, and it's different for everybody, is that such a short period of your life and what I gave up was a lot of me time. I mean, I either was working or I was with the kids. And but actually, it's such a short time. In fact, it's so sad in a way, it goes so fast. You know, once they start school, it's just so much easier to manage. My girls go to breakfast club and after school club three days a week. I work at home on a Thursday. My husband works at home on a Friday. And suddenly, it's just so much more manageable. They don't get up at four or five in the morning. And in a normal situation, when they were back at school, I feel life is totally manageable. Whereas those early years, I did get lots of quality hours with the girls and I worked hard, but I was exhausted. There's no lying about it. And would you say you are an ambitious person? I wasn't, especially before I had children. I've always loved my job. I love the subject and I I'd worked hard on the things I was interested in, but I, I wasn't desperate to be promoted or anything like that. Having had the children, I think the world I grew up in was one where my mum worked, but a lot of families lived on one income. And I think we had the children. I thought, my goodness, this is going to cost a lot of money. And that was part, not the whole reason. I've already said another reason was of wanting the girls to see that they could pursue their dreams and actually having a moment of reflection. What do I want rather than just enjoying what I'm doing? What do I want to achieve? But actually, that combination of things, the recognition that the kind of life I'd had, which I wasn't from an especially privileged family, but we had, you know, a comfortable life. Actually, that's quite difficult to achieve in the southeast of England. <laughs> as, as people who work in the public sector and charities, you know, and so that created an ambition. And then also just thinking, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want my children to see when they see me? And actually, this is now, you know, this is the time to do something with that, you know. So I suppose there's two factors, really. Mm. And we talked about career progression earlier. I'm interested, what do you think got you promoted? Is there anything 
from the research that you can see in your own life? Well, the research does say that mothers returning to the workplace are incredibly efficient. And in that period when I had the young children, I was so efficient. I mean, I worked out what was important and I put it in order of priorities and I got it done. I knew what I wanted and where I was going and what was important to me. And I think all of that was actually incredibly helpful. I think also the maturing that you go through when you have to deal with young children and the compromises that are involved, you know, becoming more senior in whichever job you're in does involve a lot of seeing things from different sides and compromising and recognizing a realistic path through. And I think that that maturity I brought from having the children was helpful to me. Mm. I love that idea that you got strength from having the children, which then helped you progress in your career. And you just mentioned we're all probably going to work 40, 50 years. And so it means you still have got quite a few years ahead of you. I hope so. (laughs) And is there anything that you do now, if you think about your career progression or anything that you do in your day to day to set yourself up for not necessarily right now, but in the long term, your own career progression? I mean, the things I get real pleasure from is kind of supporting and encouraging junior colleagues. I've always enjoyed supervising PhD students. And now I have a team and they are mostly 10 years younger than me or about that. I really enjoy that interaction and thinking where they might go and what they might do. So, yes, I'm very interested in what I might do, of course. But I feel, I suppose I'm in a university that I really love and a job I really love doing things I find really interesting not obvious to me what would be next and so I think I sort of have a view about wanting to develop the research develop the field achieve our goals bring colleagues on yeah I'm not I'm not sort of thinking what's the next step for me in that way I'm, I'm thinking more about how can we deliver what we've promised mm, that sounds brilliant and then um, I read some research about sponsorship and then actually people who help I'm sure you're not doing it for you know, you're doing it for altruistic reasons, obviously, but apparently people who do help others and invest and support others are more likely to progress themselves. Is that That's right? really reassuring, isn't it? That you'd hope that, I mean, I, I suppose that's a bit like the sort of trade-off between transactional and transformative leadership. And we know that transformative leaders are more effective, but they're not always recognized because they don't always shout the loudest about their own successes. It's reassuring if it, it does deliver for the, those individuals. I mean, of course, we're getting a very one-sided view here. If my colleagues are in this call, they might say very different things about what it's like to have me as a boss. But I'm just saying that it's relatively new to me to have a team as academics are often quite lone researchers, and I'm really enjoying it. And what are the things that are on the agenda at the moment at the Institute? Well, we, like I imagine many, many organisations have had to change our strategy somewhat in relation to COVID. So we are doing some immediate research about portrayals of women in the media around the crisis. And then we're doing some longer term research about the way different countries have or haven't addressed the issues, particularly around the childcare and the kind of safety net they're providing. We want to see what is the economic and the the effects longer term on gender equality going forward and on economic growth. Will societies that have done more to help people and protect their employment and their ability to combine work and childcare, will they be the ones that bounce back quicker? And will they be the ones that remain more equal afterwards? And that's the question that we're asking in that research. And then our other longer term research projects continue. So we look at representations of women in the media, look at the impact of women politicians. 
We look at what works to support women's careers. So those that research is still all, all ongoing, but at the moment we are focusing on all of those issues surrounded with COVID. Mm, interesting. Are you allowed as a researcher to say what your current thinking is on childcare or do you have to wait until you have the, you know, the, the global comparison or do you have to wait until you've got all the results in? Well, I always sort of have a, a two, I sort of have my own personal view and then you have what the evidence says. I mean, we know that in Australia, childcare was made available for free. That seems to me like a very good idea. <laughs> but, you know, as you say, as to be firm in how successful that's been or not, we need to do the research. Mm. And are there any key things from your research about what works when supporting women's career progress that everyone should know about? I think we talked about this a little bit earlier on, that there is really a space for women's networks and women supporting each other. And that's incredibly important. It can help raise confidence and it can help provide that social structure that sometimes exists in some organisations for men and not women, the golf course, the pub, whatever it is. That can be really helpful. It's not enough on its own. And I think there was a time 15, 20 years ago when firms thought if they set up a women's network, that was enough and they were going to get women to leadership. Now we know that we have to find ways to de-bias processes. And you mentioned Iris Bonnet earlier. And of course, she is the world's leading expert on these issues. And and my view is some of those processes, we now really have good ideas about how to de-bias recruitment, retention and progression processes. but one of the real difficult, hard to reach problems is local working cultures. And you can have all the most wonderful policies written on paper. But if you have a toxic culture in individual teams, individual departments, individual offices, women are going to be more likely to exit and they're going to be less likely to be promoted. So what can you do? We know line managers really matter. How whether line managers take the messages they're getting from the senior leadership seriously or not is really critical. And how do you incentivize line managers to really see that gender equality is going to help them perform better? Mm. So that's the work that we're really interested in. Sounds extremely interesting. I think line managers is such a critical topic. And actually, this may or may not be backed up by research, but my impression from working with the fellows and their line managers on the program is that what really matters is whether or not a line manager is going to back you in a crisis and whether or not they're willing to break the rules for you. If they are the ones who always check the policy and double check whether in section 2.1 they're allowed to do one thing or another, they're probably not going to be helpful. And somehow we just need to enable that rule breaking. There is probably a better way. It can be the opposite as well. I mean, you can have policies that, you know, we support and encourage flexible working. And then you can get individual line managers saying, or not in my team, I want to see you here. I mean, I, I hear it all the time. So how do I know you're doing any work? People report their bosses. So you can get it either way. But I think it's, as you say, it's about promoting an inclusive culture, whether that's about being flexible in terms of not having this kind of tick box approach. But it's also when there were good rules there, making use of them. Mm, absolutely, definitely. And many organizations do have good rules already. Yeah, it's fascinating. The other thing that came to my mind when you were speaking is that I noticed so again we did a very short not probably definitely not as scientific survey as yours would be but we did one with our fellows about their experience right now and they said that they were connecting a lot more with people within the organization right now surprisingly than before so they they spent a lot more time talking to people internally fascinating but then Mm. on the other hand they were a lot less connected to people outside the organization and if you think about what causes 
career progression, in order to get to the really senior roles, you do need to be connected and you need to be understanding what's happening outside of your organization. And I just wonder whether maybe as a result of this COVID crisis, people who have childcare responsibilities don't have much energy for outside connection and obviously virtually it's hard to connect outside. And then that might add another layer to the whole career progress challenge. Yeah, I think visibility, human beings, we are a little bit lazy when we try and think who'd be good for this job or that task or this opportunity. We think of the first person that comes into our mind. So if you've got a profile within an organisation, you are much more likely to get those opportunities. So I think when you actually you made me think about something that it's worth doing and that I did do. So I became the vice chair of the Political Studies Association. I hadn't really done anything like that before. And it gave me a visibility that was so useful. I've done more media work that was useful. And I think even with children, you can think about what role could I take on that I can manage, that I can fit in with my current pattern of working that would give me more visibility in my organisation or externally. And you're absolutely right. That matters so much. And you don't have to be everywhere all the time. You don't have to be at every pub meeting. You just need to be someone that people think of in association with the thing you care about that you would like to be promoted to do or the opportunities you'd like to have. So I think, you know, often the most effective people are very thoughtful about what they do with their time. They don't say yes to everything. They're not in every room, but they think, okay, where do I want to go and how will I get there? And I think it's a massive mistake to think just quietly getting on with really good work will be recognized because with the best will in the world, human beings don't operate that way, which is why we need good processes. But you can help yourself by making yourself visible. So if there's a voluntary role that you could manage because it can be done at any time of day, for example, that you can take on that will then give you a, a greater profile to do it. Mm, couldn't agree more. And what practical thing did you do to get your first big visibility moment? I think when I started out as an academic, there was sometimes a slight sense that people who did media work were not serious. And I never felt like that. I thought, what's the point in all this stuff being written if nobody knows about it? And I think that was helpful. Now there's a lot of pressure on all academics to engage more, which is brilliant. And I think sometimes you do things that make you sick. I mean, I've, I've been on the Today programme, I sat in the green room and I just thought, I'm going to throw up. And sometimes you do these things on Newsnight too and you think, what the hell am I doing? You just have to remember that you might not be the best or the brightest person that's ever been on Newsnight or the Today programme or whatever the thing that intimidates you is. You won't be the worst, I promise you. I really promise you. You know, look at the president of the United States. There are plenty of people who bluff out there. Do your homework, be prepared and take on those challenges, even if they make you terribly, terribly nervous, because it's worth it. That is absolutely excellent advice. And I think uh, bringing close to the podcast. So are there any other practical things that you think people who are right now at home, worried about their long term career, but also struggling can do to one, keep themselves sane, but two, have the best chance to make sure their career progression is still ahead of them? As I said, this is unprecedented, but I do think do make sure when you've achieved something, a clear output that you get the credit for it. You don't have to be pushy. No one likes a pushy person. But, you know, do make sure that your name is attached to the things that you've done that have delivered. Because I think in a crisis like this, we have to focus on quality rather than quantity with what we're doing. So being able to say no to some things and do some things really, really well might be good advice. It does obviously depend on your role and your organization. Also remind yourself, it's awful, but it's a certain number of months out of a very long career. And if this had been a maternity leave or a paternity leave, 
you'd have been planning for it and you'd be thinking about how you would manage it and there'd be processes to help you, etc. Those aren't there, but this is a short time and, it, you know, we will all get over it, I hope. I hope so too. Excellent advice. If people want to connect with you and find out more about your work and the work of the Institute, where should they go? I'm to the website of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. Great. And people can look you up on Twitter if they want to follow you. And Of course, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yep. Yeah. At Prof Rosie Campbell, I think. Excellent. Good memory there. And I'm following obviously you and also the Institute, which is very interesting and podcasts are brilliant. So I could definitely recommend listening to them as well. Thank you for that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rosie. Really lovely to chat to you. Lovely to speak to you, Brina. Thank you for listening today. I want to spread this message that it is absolutely okay to love your ambitious career and love your children at the same time. And I need your help to achieve this. I would love to make a difference to more people and reach thousand listeners by September for this podcast. So if this podcast has helped you in any way, please do take a moment to share it with five of your friends and of course do share it on social media. And like with any podcast, five stars reviews really help with the visibility. Also, if you haven't already, do sign up to our newsletters on www.leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter for inspiration and practical tips. Until next time, have a wonderful week.